This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today is Dr. Rachel Dolan, the U.S. House of Representatives Ways and Means Committee Majority Staffer, to discuss the Majority Staff's recently released report titled Under-Enforced and Overprescribed, the Antipsychotic Drug Epidemic Ravaging America's Nursing Homes. Dr. Dolan, welcome to the program. Hi, David. Thanks so much for having me, and please call me Rachel. Okay. <laughs> well, this will be the last time. Dr. Dolan's bio is posted on, of course, the podcast website. In testimony before the House Energy and Commerce Committee in 2007, the FDA's Dr. David Graham stated, quote-unquote, 15,000 elderly people in nursing homes are dying each year from the off-label use of antipsychotic medications for an indication that the FDA knows the drug doesn't work. The problem has been known in the FDA for years and years, close quote. While not illegal, the FDA does provide a black box warning label regarding off-label use of these drugs. Eleven years later, Human Rights Watch published a report titled, They Want Docile, How Nursing Homes in the U.S. Over-Medicate People with Dementia. The report found in 2016-17, quote-unquote, massive use or abuse of antipsychotics, for example, Seroquel, Haldol, and Risperdal, that have serious side effects, including sudden cardiac death. The Human Rights Report estimated in an average week over 179,000 long-stay nursing home facility patients were administered antipsychotic drugs without a diagnosis for which the drugs are indicated or approved, moreover bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. In testimony of the Ways and Means Committee heard this past November, Richard Mollett, Executive Director of the Long-Term Care Community Coalition, concluded, quote, the use of antipsychotics in skilled nursing facilities is so extensive that it puts the U.S. in violation of internal conventions and covenants on torture and cruel, inhumane, and degraded treatment or punishment, close quote. This is my third related interview. In December 2012, I discussed the topic with Diana Zuckerman, and in February 18, I interviewed Hannah Flam, who authored the above-mentioned Human Rights Report. With me again to discuss the Ways and Means Report just released, titled Under-Enforced and Over-Prescribed, is Rachel Dolan, the report's lead author. So with that, Rachel, as background, let's get right into this or immediate, uh, immediately into the specifics of the report. What did the report find regarding uh, the extent to which there persists overuse or misuse of antipsychotics in skilled nursing? Thanks, David. So the report showed what, what you what we would expect from your introduction, which is that the use of antipsychotics does persist in nursing homes across the country, and it remains quite high. Um, and, and that, of course, has implications for patient safety and, and health. Um, we found in the fourth quarter of 2019, approximately 20% of all skilled nursing facility residents in the U.S., so that's about 298,650 people every week, received some form of antipsychotic medication, um, and most of that was without any psychosis diagnosis for which these drugs 
are indicated. Um, so specifically, we actually looked at trends in survey or citations for unnecessary medication use in nursing homes. So that's kind of the, the novel part of the study. And what we found was a clear change in citation rates for these facilities between the change in administrations from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. Um, so we found citations for antipsychotic misuse in SNFs increased by 200 percent between 2015 and 2017, but then declined by 22 percent from 2017 to 2018. And importantly, 10% uh, of citations associated with actual harm or immediate jeopardy to a resident's health or safety. So those are some of the most severe citations surveyors ever capture um, resulted in no fine from 2017 to 2018 under the Trump administration. Um, so, you know, I would say even though this study in particular couldn't determine causation, um, we, we did see a clear association between the Trump administration's regulatory rollback campaign between 2017 and 2018 and a reduction in citations for these particular drugs. Okay, thank you. And we'll get into the Trump administration's uh, regulatory decisions in this regard in a minute. Let me just ask as a follow-up or an aside question, and I don't think I saw this in your report, so you may not have these numbers top of mind, but worth asking. Can you give an approximation of the cost uh, to the Medicare program, at least, relative to the overuse? I mean, this is a massive amount of money in reimbursement for these medications. I don't remember offhand. Um, let's see. I think in the in the actually in the report we said um, about one third of an older adult Medicare Part D enrollees with dementia who spent more than 100 days in a nursing home were prescribed an antipsychotic in 2012, constituting roughly 363 million in Part D plan payments that year. Um, and of course, there's also costs associated with hospitalizations for inappropriate use of these drugs. Mm -hmm. um, so I would expect, you know, that 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 is obviously a very under an understatement that um, understated estimate that does not capture the full realm of, of payments. So it's it's fairly substantial. Yes, and again, one of the uh, uh, side effects of this is increased rates of hospitalization, as you suggest. Let's go to. Um, this is sort of the next, uh, so we have overuse, we've had overuse for a long while, uh, and increasing overuse, so it appears, and we'll get back to Trump, but uh, what explains, uh, what's the motivation for over or misuse um, for these medications? So that's a really important question uh, because it gets to the, the crux of why this is happening. Um, so as we explained in the, the background section of the study, um, prior research has shown that uh, use of antipsychotics is likely related to staffing levels in nursing homes. So lower staffing levels uh, are associated with higher rates of antipsychotic use. Um, and really staffing in many ways is a proxy for the resources available to deliver care to patients in these facilities. Uh, one study in particular found for residents with and without dementia, one additional RN hour per resident day could reduce the odds of an antipsychotic use by 52% and 56% respectively for those patients with and without dementia. Um, I think, you know, the Human Rights Watch report that you cited at the beginning of this in the introduction um, also confirmed this qualitatively through their interviews. Uh, you know, they actually were kind enough to provide us with some of the quotes uh, that they collected during that study, some additional quotes, and we included them throughout the 
the report and and I just want to cite one of those one of one of them was from a Texas social worker who explained that quote the nursing homes don't want behaviors they want docile they want people with no cognitive deficits who can take care of themselves end quote so I think this is you know this gets at the, the heart of the matter here is um, you know people without you know people who can take care of themselves in a sense fills the gap in, in uh, created by not having enough staffing in these in these facilities. Okay, thank you. I'll I'll ask the first part, or I'll answer the first part of this question, and you can ask the second part. And that is, seventy one percent of, according to MedPAC, seventy one seventy one percent of skilled nursing facilities are for profit. What is their profit margin? Well, I believe, uh, and you may be, you may have the information in front of you. I don't have it, but it, for I believe the last nineteen consecutive years, we've seen Medicare nursing home profit margins in the double digits. Yes, and you're, I think that is. A, you're you're is exactly right? you're exactly right. <laughs> uh, I just went back to the most recent MedPAC report, and uh, double digits is somewhat understated. It's been at about 20% margin for the last 20 years. That's um, right. And I, one thing I wanted to point out about that is, is, you know, a lot of these nursing homes, they, you know, they have Medicare patients and they also have Medicaid. Sure. And, and, you know, the important point here is the Medicaid reimburses at a much, at a much lower rate. And that obviously varies by state. So one of the points that MedPAC always you know, says is that the Medicare payments tend to subsidize those Medicaid payments, which are, are, you know, in many senses, underpayments. Right, de facto, correct. Yes. Let, let's let's go. Let's try to get into the chronology here, or take this chronologically. And that is, um, what was the majority staff's conclusion regarding the success of the CMS voluntary program that Don Berwick started in 2012, titled "National Partnership to Improve Dementia Care in Nursing Homes." So, you know, that was not the the focal point of our research necessarily, mm-hmm. but obviously we did dig into it um, to a certain extent. And, you know, I think the important thing to point out here is that uh, the national partnership has touted, you know, a 40 percent reduction in the use of antipsychotics since it began in, I think, 2012. And, um, you know, I think it's important to look at those numbers. Um, the The first point is, you know, <laughs> rates are still high if we look at the patients with uh these serious conditions that would require an antipsychotic, I mean, the rate should be around, you know, 2% or something. And still, we, we have a significant number of patients that are getting these drugs that shouldn't be. So, you know, relative success is just that. It's relative. And it, and it really doesn't mean anything for the for the patients and families who are suffering for the inappropriate use of these drugs. And then the other thing I wanted to point out is that the data sort of raised some questions because the way that CMS calculates these data um, are they remove the short stay nursing home residents mm-hmm. um, and they remove people with a psychosis diagnosis from that calculation. So the report, you know, we point to the fact that there has actually been an uptick in reporting of of the falsifying of psychosis diagnoses to avoid the surveyors. And so if you exclude those people from the calculation, you have a significant underestimate, um, which is why our numbers are s- substantially higher than those reported by the National Partnership and CMS. Okay, let's let's get more on target relative to the report, and let's go into if you could step us through what exactly did the Trump administration do 
when it took office relative to regulatory oversight of use of um, these meds in post-acute? So I, I want to paint sort of the broader picture, which is one of um, right, you know, regulatory reduction. The, the administration has been touting their patients over paperwork campaign, which is not specific to nursing homes. It's sort of you know, cross-cutting around across uh, all of the different providers uh, in Medicare. And so, you know, every time they issue a rule, they talk about what they've done to reduce the burden on providers. Um, so that's sort of part of this. But I think specific to this particular report, the important thing to highlight is the Trump administration eliminated, um, you know, the Obama-era per-day fining practices that were implemented in July 2017, right? So if you have an infraction, you are fined every day until you remedy that. Um, And what the Trump administration did was they issued a single fine um, instead. And that, you know, in the case of inappropriate antipsychotic citations, that was accounted for two thirds of all citations in that space. Um, You know, I, I think the Kaiser Health News had a report that showed that average aggregate fines on nursing homes, um, that endangered or injured residents dropped from 41,260 under President Obama's last year in office in 2016 to 28,405 in the period between April 2017 and March 2018. And I think that's really one of the important points to raise here in the context of this report and and how we saw the, the rates of citations decrease under the Trump administration. Okay, thank you. Um, there is some discussion about the interaction between the committee and CMS. You do cite uh, the fact that the chairman, Neil, wrote a letter on this matter to CMS in 718 or July of 18. You do make note of the fact that CMS never provided the committee with a written plan to reduce use or reduce falsified diagnoses. What would you say further relative to uh, the interaction uh, you've had in pursuing this research with uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So that's that's right. They didn't provide a written response um, to the tw- the January 2019 follow up letter my boss sent. So so he sent a letter in July of 2018. We got what he believed to be an unsatisfactory response in November of uh, that year, and then so he followed up with another letter in in January of 2019, asking, you know, more pointed questions specifically about this issue of falsifying diagnoses. And and the response that we got from that was actually the data that we got underlying um, this particular report. So they, instead of, you know, sending back a written response, uh, they actually just sent us Excel files with data in them and, you know, and talk to us about it. Um, so I think, you know, we had to do our own digging to find some answers. And of course, a lot of them went um, unanswered, but that is sort of the crux of it. Okay. Much of the report, uh, page 23 forward for about eight or nine pages, is an overview of the more of the quantitative study you made relative to uh, citations. Um, could you or would you highlight a few of those uh, findings since it is a, a, a substantial um, uh, aspect or component to the report. Sure. I, and I think, you know, these, I can dig in a little bit more specifically than I said before, but the, the, the important things to point out is is this distinction in, in citations that we saw between um, 
the Obama administration and the Trump administration, where we saw a 22 percent decline from 2017 to 2018. Um, but, you know, broadly, if you look across the data between 2015 and 2018, there was a 124 percent increase in the number of citations for the inappropriate use of uh, antipsychotics in nursing homes. Um, and then, um, you know, between 26, the, 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 the bulk of that happened between 2016 and 2017 under Obama. So we saw an 199% increase in citation rates. Uh, so that's 2,221 more citations. Um, and every state experienced a large increase, the largest being California, Ohio, Texas, New York, and Pennsylvania. And then we saw between 2016 and 2017, um, you know, things stabilized. And then in 2017 to 2018, rates decreased by 22.1%, um, the largest in California, Ohio, Indiana, and New York. Okay, thank you. So this is not surprising uh, to summarize. The Trump administration provides essentially this uh, moratorium on reg enforcement. And not surprising, this is the effect we get uh, relative to citations. Um, I, I do have a, a side question. Uh, I believe you make brief mention of state regulatory action. And I ask that specifically because um, the issue here largely gets at informed consent. And you do make note of this issue somewhat tangentially about states having passed laws uh, requiring informed consent. What's your overall uh, comment or, or assessment of states uh, policing uh, their nursing homes? So we didn't look into that uh, specifically for the report. As you mentioned, it is in the background section. I mean, I think, you know, oversight of nursing homes is is always going to be a, a state federal venture because, you know, the surveyors, uh, you know, are, are you know, work for, for at state surveyors. And um, so there's always variability there. I, I can't speak to the specific policies um, in states and the extent to which uh, they have worked or not worked because we didn't really look at that. But um, that is to say that there is some variation in how states have, have handled this particular issue. Okay, thank you. I'll just note, and this is buried somewhere in, uh, in your report and I've typed it in my notes, you state overall the state focus, uh, state efforts to reduce have been largely stagnant. Focus is more on physical rather than chemical restraints, but you do note three states, California, Oklahoma, and Illinois, that now require uh, physician-obtained uh, informed consent. Let me go to um, uh, the latter part of, of the report, and before we get to that, I do have to ask you, and I'd, I'd feel largely remiss if I didn't ask you, this is calling for your interpretation, um, but again, before we get to the report's conclusions, and what uh, we may see in the next Congress relative to legislation in response to this report. Um, as you're well aware, the federal government has for decades used taxpayer dollars to pay for SNFs or reimburse them. And this has been under the guise of providing health care for moreover, and, and let's be uh, clear here, moreover, these are frail elderly women who reside uh, in these facilities. Um, the result of which uh, we're well aware uh, per my mention of David Graham, uh, has resulted in um, likely the deaths of many thousands of these residents. And to say further, as I, and I cited um, intentionally uh, Richard Mollett's testimony you heard in November, uh, this behavior may actually violate uh, 
uh, international treaty. Um, so my question is, considering how long this has persisted, uh, what, what's your interpretation or explanation as to why we can't seem to resolve or remedy or address successfully this problem? So it's a good question. Um, and I think it's, this is kind of a tricky issue. Um, I would say to, to preface it, this is not specifically what our report looked into. Cause so I am speaking more from my experience working in this space. Um, but I think this, this question really gets to the broader issue of quality in nursing homes and why we continue to struggle even after the nursing home reform act, um, was passed in 1987, so <laughs> 33 years ago at this point, and that was really meant to to overhaul nursing homes and and provide a safer environment for patients. and And I also want to mention sort of the current the current backdrop of today with COVID 19 and how long term care residents, uh, you know, represent I think something around eight percent of cases, but more than forty percent of deaths. And actually, in some states, it's you know, more than half of deaths, uh, a significant amount, more than half of deaths. Um, but, you know, I think this gets to, you know, the fact that in general, our policies reflect our societal values, right? You know, in the United States, we value longevity, but we don't necessarily value what that truly means. Um, I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's very difficult to talk about aging. Um, and, and this goes to some of my prior work on, on hospice care um, during my PhD. And, you know, I think, uh, this this goes to the fact that many Americans uh, do not want to face the reality that at some point they or their loved ones may need institutional care. So, you know, it is it is challenging to create change or devote a significant number of resources to an area of the healthcare system where people just don't really want to want to think about it or invest in it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think this goes to the broader questions about where we are with nursing homes right now in our country and whether, you know, what we're seeing there with the number of deaths and um, in all of the infection control issues that have been become so public, whether this will be uh, a turning point for us and in truly taking the time to invest in our patients, um, receiving institutional care and, and the families that so rely on these on these settings. Well, let's let's hope uh, that is the case. I, I will say, per your point about infections, you do note in the report, and this is uh, research, I believe, from OIG, uh, one, to th- uh, one to three million serious infections occur in SNFs each year, um, and more than 60% of these facilities have been cited for deficiencies in relation or related to infection control since the beginning of 2017. Um, so antipsychotic overuse, infections, COVID, the list goes on. Let me go to um, the conclusion of the report. The majority staff uh, did not make recommendations. Uh, so my question is, why uh, was that? And I ask particularly because you do state uh, in conclusion, the report states, quote unquote, that uh, the paper makes a case for a specific policy proposal particularly since the report concludes it is reasonable to conclude overuse is pervasive and continues to occur at unacceptably high rates, close quote, and amidst the intent of the 87 Nursing Home Reform Act just mentioned have not um, been realized. I might mention too, and I encourage listeners to to read um, uh, Mollett's uh, November testimony that we've already referenced uh, because he, as you're well aware, makes several recommendations, uh, including arguing for more formal informed consent. So again, 
why did the report pass on on recommendations? So I think, you know, in terms of the purpose of this report, it was really to draw public attention to this this issue. Um, you know, we did not go so far as to provide our own recommendations, but we did include a number of recommendations from credible outside organizations for consideration, including Richard Mollett's organization, LTCCC. Um, and so, you know, I think on a committee level, we continue to weigh different options and are thinking things through in the context really of where we are right now with COVID-19 and, and the outbreaks in, in uh, nursing home facilities. Okay, so the subsequent follow-up is, what's your sense of this report uh, prompting legislation to eliminate misuse um, and uh, regulate the related uh, issue or probably impetus thereof, which is uh, understaffing? And included in my question is, this is the Ways and Means Committee majority report. Uh my understanding that clearly means there was no Republican support and relative to future legislation, what's your sense of Republicans? I would hope to think this could be a bipartisan issue, but what's your sense also of Republican support? So on the bipartisan uh, side of things, I would say um, and point you to the letter that we released this summer, actually, with the folks um, with Grassley and Wyden and uh, Brady. So it was uh, bipartisan, bicameral where we sent a letter to OIG asking them to do a follow-up study looking at, um, to their 2014 study that really kind of brought a lot of attention to this um, on the use of uh, psychotropic drugs. So I think there's definitely a lot of interest in, in um, thinking through how to handle this. I, I, you know, as for this particular issue, you know, we were pointing out, you know, challenges with uh, citation rates in the Trump administration so I think, you know, doing it on a major- on the majority front based on the letter that our boss wrote to CMS and the data that we as the majority received um, made a lot of sense. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Am I correct that per this session of the Congress, which is rapidly concluding, the only bill that I could find was H.R. 1955, Understanding Appropriate Alzheimer's Care. This was Ann Custer's bill with two co-sponsors requesting CMS to study antipsychotic prescribing practices in non-nursing home settings. Was there any other legislation related this session to your knowledge? I'm not sure, um, but just, you know, just because there's no legislation out there doesn't mean that, you know, folks are thinking about and working on on issues um, for the longer term. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I do have, and this is somewhat formula, a final question I'll just uh, throw in here, and that is, uh, again, formulaically, what would you advise, having studied this subject uh, to the extent that you have, what would you advise family members relative to um, either admitting and overseeing their family members' uh, care in a nursing home facility? What, what, what should family caregivers uh, pay attention to? I think, you know, our experience with COVID has really highlighted how important family members are in this whole process of overseeing care for patients, right? So when, um, you know, everything closed down in, in March and families were not able to go in to see their loved ones, that was a critical oversight tool that was missing. Um, and so I think the important thing to the extent people are able is to really be involved in the care of their 
loved ones um, because we we know this is happening and you know making sure that your your loved one is getting the right care is a vital uh, support tool uh, to exercise as as caregivers. Um, so I think you know that is the important point and I, you know a lot of a lot of this is also the importance of being aware that this is an issue to begin with and and that's part of the reason that um, my boss has been so vocal about about this issue is making sure the public is aware as we continue to think through um, options. And, you know, frankly, I think this this is something that really needs to be handled on an administrative um, level. But, you know, if the Trump administration was doing their their job on overseeing this, as the report points out, then maybe this would be less of an issue. But, um, you know, we, we all have our role in, in making sure that there is accountability on this front, um, because at the end of the day, the important point here is to keep patients safe um, and, and families, um, you know, aware of what's going on. Yes, absolutely. So I would say in two words, pay attention. Correct. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. So Rachel, thank you for this overview. Uh, my congratulations to you and your colleagues on producing this report. I will say, uh, obviously, it would be nice if uh, next session, next Congress, next administration, uh, we could see some related legislation um, long since past due. But thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me. Take care, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.